Our scripture this morning is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let's open our hearts to hear God's words this morning. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, this is the week. This is the week when New Year's resolutions die. According to an article in the Wall Street Journal, people start off feeling very committed to all those plans, you know, to get fit, to go on a diet, to get healthier. But this is the week that those plans start to fail. It takes about three or four weeks before resolve starts to waver. The gyms are a little less crowded. The snack foods reappear. That new stair climber gets moved to the garage. People have a hard time sticking with their commitments. And the same thing is true as we talk about feeding your soul, as we talk about what it takes to move towards Christ, towards spiritual maturity. We want to grow in our faith. We want to get stronger, healthier as followers of Christ. We want to be more disciplined in our prayer life and studying the Bible, our devotions. But that after a few weeks, our resolve starts to waver. Well, what can we do to stick with our commitments? Well, the Wall Street Journal article uh, mentioned several strategies for sticking with those New Year's resolutions, and at least one of them applies to us in feeding our souls. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Don't try to grow your faith alone. In any commitment we make, including our spiritual commitments, it's always better to have someone alongside, you know, a training partner, someone who holds you accountable. Having a weekly check-in with someone encourages you, it challenges you, it holds you accountable to what you say you want to do, and that can make all the difference. If you want to keep your commitments, you have to recognize that you're not in it alone. And really, that's what the church is supposed to be for us as we seek to feed our souls. Worship each Sunday is sort of a weekly check-in, a time to recalibrate, recommit, reconnect, a time when you realize that feeding your soul is not just you on a solo journey through life. As a follower of Christ, you're part of a larger community. So feeding your soul isn't just about you, it's also about how you relate to others. And as we begin to look at our relationships, one thing we see right away is that we all need a big dose of humility. If we want to form healthy relationships and grow our faith as Christ intended, we all need to go on sort of an ego diet. In the passage from Romans 12, the Apostle Paul describes what spiritual maturity actually looks like. He lists all these wonderful qualities, visible things about how Christ's followers are to relate to each other as we feed our souls. 
And first of all, he says, love must be sincere. Sincere, that's a great word. Why does he start with that? Well, back in ancient Rome, marble was all the rage. The Romans loved its texture and colors. They used marble to make statues of their wealthiest and most influential citizens. They decorated their halls with scenes carved from marble. Marble columns graced all their architecture. Their temples were filled with, with the marble idols of all their gods. A good piece of marble was highly expensive. And so, of course, then unscrupulous marble salesmen came up with ways to fool the naive marble shopper. One scheme was to take a slab of poor quality marble and rub it with wax to hide its imperfections or to improve its color. Like a used car salesman might put new, car, new tires on an old junker. So the Romans came up with a Latin name for the very best marble. The finest quality marble, guaranteed 100% genuine, no flaws, no tricks, no gimmicks. They called this marble sincere, which literally meant without wax. So when the Apostle Paul says in verse 9 that love must be sincere, he's saying that love has to be more than just not fake. He's saying that love among Christians has to be of the highest quality, without wax. God's love is supposed to be very practical. God's love and grace are supposed to affect you know, every area of life, like a powerful vaccine that enters the body and spreads out to every cell. The grace of Christ enters our lives and is spread out to every nook and cranny of our being, and especially the way we interact with others. This makes sense because Jesus said that his followers, his church, should express a special kind of love for each other. In John 16, 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love should be the most visible quality of spiritually growing Christians. And so we use words like fellowship and community and koinonia to describe this unique bonding of love within the Christian church, the highest quality of love, something that the world will notice. So it's no wonder people expect the church to be a place of love. And no wonder people can be shocked when they see the, that the reality is often very different from that ideal. What do people sometimes find in a church? Jealousy, anger, conflict, backbiting, gossip, and sometimes just plain nastiness. If they walk into the middle of a church fight, you know, look out. That can be worse than stumbling into a barroom brawl. People are shocked to see all the same kinds of problems inside the church as they experience out in the world. But really, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be shocked. I mean, after all, the church is just a collection of sinful people who are seeking Christ together. Most of Paul's letters were written to troubled churches. Some of them were seriously messed up. So from the very beginning, the church has not been a place for perfect people. No, it's a place for people who carry a lot of baggage, who've experienced life's pain, who've got some dings and dents, you know, but who are seeking a better way, who are seeking a touch from God's hand so that they can go in a new direction through the power of Jesus Christ. The church is never going to be a utopia. It will always be filled with problems and problem people because Christ's church is to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It's the place to be if you're seeking to become whole in God's love. And as followers of Christ, we want to be moving closer to being like Jesus in all aspects of life. And that's why Paul gets all emotional in this passage. Last week I mentioned that emotional maturity is part of spiritual maturity. 
If we're going to grow into maturity in Christ, our emotions need to grow up too. And this entire section of Scripture is about our emotions, love and friendship, jealousy, anger, feelings of revenge, joy, sadness, really the whole range of emotions. And why does he talk about these things? Well, because he knew those were the things the ancient Christians were struggling with. And folks, we struggle with those same things. Romans 12 is Paul's prescription on how God's mercy can change a life. He says back in verse 1, you have to offer your body as a living sacrifice. And then he says in verse 2 that you have to allow God to transform your mind from within. And now he says God's got to get involved with your emotions too. So it's body, mind, and emotions. They all work together in how God is going to be at work in your life. Body, mind, and emotions. We all need God's mercy for our emotions. But that's an area where often we need God's transforming power the most. One of our former mission partners, Pete Scazzaro of the New Life Fellowship in Queens, he's written two excellent books about the emotional side of the Christian faith, the emotionally healthy church and emotionally healthy spirituality. And one of the things Pete talks about is the fact that we all come with some emotional disconnects depending on our family history, our individual makeup, our life's experiences. We all have some you know, bugs in our emotional hard drive, some more than others, but we all do, and those emotional disconnects don't automatically disappear once we discover faith in Jesus Christ. Our emotions are an important area for spiritual growth, and if we don't take our emotions seriously as a, as a point of discipleship, and we don't let God begin to kind of fine-tune our emotional life, then God's mercy is really never going to go very deep into the core of who we are. Paul says love sincerely. A little literal translation of the Greek word he used would be love without hypocrisy. In ancient Greece, a hypocrite was a technical term for a stage actor, someone playing a role for the Greek theater. And then it came to mean someone who intentionally tried to deceive others. When we're not really honest about who we are in our emotional life, we try to make the outside look better than the inside. We may be able to act in a loving way towards others, but that behavior doesn't really match up with what we feel inside, and so we pretend. We mask, we cover up, we swallow what we're really feeling, maybe because we fear rejection, we fear being ashamed. For whatever reason, we hide what's really going on inside us and we can even look very spiritual while doing it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. People can do some remarkable acts of sacrifice or devotion, can look super spiritual on the outside and not really have love. Real love, real emotional wellness doesn't play act. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love rejoices with the truth. So there has to be truth in our emotional life. Hypocrisy is all about falsehood and concealment and deceit and cloaking and misleading. Hypocrisy about our interior emotional life is really the opposite of loving sincerely. We, we can even pretend to love God. Jesus chastised the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, external lip praise was not accompanied by an internal heart praise. Jesus wants us to love sincerely, to love without wax. So how do we do that? 
How do we learn to love sincerely? Paul gives us a few clues in this passage. Verse 9 is actually one long sentence. Paul writes, love must be sincere. And then without starting a new sentence, he goes right on saying, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The link between the command to love and that double command to hate evil and cling to good is very close. So when Paul says love sincerely, hating the evil and clinging to the good, I really take that to mean that that the loving thing to do, the way to love sincerely, is for us to hate the evil and embrace the good. His words are very strong here. Hate evil. If you read different translations of this passage, they use very vivid words, abhor, loathe, be disgusted with. Is that how you feel towards things that you know are evil and contrary to Christ? Things that you know that are not good for you or for the ones that you care about? You know, too often, we just kind of get numb towards evil. We, just, we don't feel anything anymore. We get so used to it that we don't even react. It's, it's just this polluted ocean that we swim in. And Paul says we need to react to evil on an emotional level. We need to hate evil, not the people. We're not to hate the people, but we should react emotionally to evil behavior. We're, we're, we're not to hate ourselves when we veer off the path of Christ, certainly. Paul's not condoning some kind of self-loathing, you know, like the alcoholic who hates himself for falling off the wagon. No, he's talking about having an emotional sensitivity to the things that drag people, that drag you and me away from Christ. And that emotional reaction is then tied to the next phrase, to cling to what is good. It's not just a negative, you know, reaction, but there's a positive commitment. Cling to the good. This is an intense emotional word, cling to. It's actually used to describe sexual union in 1 Corinthians 6.16. To cling means to embrace, to hold tight, love the good in life, and don't let go. There's a tenacity to the word. I remember one time I was walking with my son Jonathan. We were on a walk outside, and a squirrel went running across a path that had a baby squirrel wrapped around its, the mother's shoulders, and that baby squirrel was holding on for dear life as the mother scrambled up a tree. And Paul says, grab on to the good and hold on tight. Don't let it slip away. Love the good. When faith gets down to this deep emotional level, that's what signals deep spiritual transformation. Because often the hardest struggle for Christians is to see our emotions changed. Not just our thoughts or our beliefs or our behavior even, but way down into the emotional life to be in love with the good that we find in Jesus. Paul goes on to illustrate how radical this kind of emotional transformation really is, this kind of spiritual maturity. In verse 17, he says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. And then he quotes from Proverbs 25, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Well, honestly, I mean, who can do that on their own? The impulse for getting even, the impulse for revenge, the impulse for self-protection, those are so strong in us feed your enemy. It's impossible to do that apart from Christ. Paul was asking them literally to do the impossible. Someone who's hurt you, someone who's got it in for you, and and somehow the situation now turns in your favor for once you've got the upper hand over them, what do you do? Do you crush them or do you offer them grace? What would you need to be able to feed your enemy when it's in your power to maybe starve them to death? Well, you'd need a couple of things. First, you'd need a deep confidence in God, a deep sense of security in Him so you wouldn't feel like you had to crush, you didn't need to crush your enemy. A deep confidence that you could trust God for the situation 
and for the future, that you wouldn't have to take things into your own hands. You have to discover a deep emotional security in Christ so that then you don't feel like you have to take revenge. And second, we need a huge dose of humility where you take yourself out of the driver's seat and let God have first place. You submit yourself to Christ. And that means your ego has to go on a diet. It has to shrink. Because isn't it often it's your wounded pride that causes you to hold on to resentment, to bitterness, and, and that desire to get even? Going on an ego diet means letting go of the need for revenge. It, it doesn't mean opening yourself to further problems with the person or being taken advantage of again but it means releasing your anger. And this isn't something that we can do on our own, just by our own willpower. We work cooperatively with the Holy Spirit to address our emotional life. God says, great verse, Ezekiel 36, 26, and I give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. God's gotta give us that new heart if we're gonna take uh, love and hate as we ought. As the Romans, that Paul has been saying, we, we, we don't get a new heart by pursuing self-change. No, we cry out for mercy. Mercy to God, that Christ said he would take this heart of stone of ours and give us a new heart. A new heart that begins to see the way the world the way Jesus sees it. A new heart that begins to feel towards the world the way Jesus felt. Paul says we have to be zealous about this stuff. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Paul's saying, look at this, feel this, feel intensely about this. Hate the evil that chokes out the life of God in you and grab onto the good that God has for you. That's how sincerity gets real in your love. Love the good, cherish the good. And Jesus is the ultimate good. Nothing is better for us than Christ himself. He's infinitely good and infinitely good for us. So you've got to get some intensity going about grabbing onto him. You can hear in Paul's words this call to intensity. They're words that call us to connect our emotional life with our faith. And you say, well, you know, I'm just not a very passionate person. And then justify your passivity towards faith. But in Christ, we're all being changed into the image of God. And God was not lukewarm about these faith issues. This passage was really a rebuke to the passive and kind of lazy Christians in ancient Rome. Their faith had plateaued, and Paul assumed that they could do something about it. And so can we. We've been given the same Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the power of prayer, precisely to stir up positive, godly emotions in our own hearts and to reduce our big egos. I believe God is speaking this word directly to us this morning as it relates to our emotional and spiritual health. Don't lag, don't float, don't drift. Don't sit mindlessly in front of a pixelated screen for half your life. Stir up some zeal for God and for the important relationships around you. There are great things worth living for, great things to grab onto, great good that we can be involved with, people who need to be loved and nurtured and cared for. We'll talk more about that next week. But pour your life into the cause of Christ and God will give you more significance to your life than you can ever possibly imagine. God calls you to invest your life in things that are good, things that will feed your emotional health, the good things that will feed your soul. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would respond with a sense of zeal, that our emotions would connect with our faith in a unique and special way, Lord, and we begin to see and feel life 
not just through our brains, but through our emotions, feel life as Christ felt it. Be hurt by the things that hurt him. Find joy in the things that gave him joy, Lord, and connect our emotions to our faith and connect them all to you. We thank you in Christ's name.